On Monday, December 6th, the Supreme Court will hear argument in a case called Hughes v. Northwestern University. The issue in this case is how much detail employees and retirees in a pension plan who believe their plans are paying too much in investment fees have to put in their complaint in order to even get a court to consider the merits of the case. This is a seemingly technical issue, and the case itself has gotten little attention, even among many people who litigate ERISA cases. But for anyone who has a 401k pension plan, the issue is extremely important because, as we'll hear, paying too much in fees over the course of a career has the potential to cut the retirement income you have by as much as one-third or more. Too often, companies providing and managing plan investments take a big cut of the amount invested, which for a large plan usually adds up to many millions of dollars per year, and which would otherwise go to plan participants. If plan fiduciaries do not do anything to control the fees, the plans often end up paying unreasonable fees that can be compared to the fees that loan sharks and bookies take in order to ensure that all the risk is on the borrower and none of it is on the lender. Today on ERISA Watch, The VIG. There are two kinds of private pension plans in the United States. The first is the old-fashioned kind and what most people think of when they think of what it means to have a pension. This kind of pension, called a defined benefit pension plan, is normally based on a retiree's age, the number of years that they worked, and their final salary. The defining characteristic of this kind of pension is that the amount of the pension that a worker will receive can be calculated exactly and the employer is on the hook for ensuring that this amount can be paid to retirees every month. This used to be the most common kind of pension plan for people who were lucky enough to have a pension plan, but it hasn't been in many decades. Instead, most workers who have pensions nowadays have what is known as a defined contribution plan. In this type of plan, usually both the employers and the employees contribute a set amount every pay period to be invested in available options under the plan, and the amount that a worker ultimately gets at retirement depends entirely on the earnings on the amount invested minus any fees and costs. The employer has essentially transferred the investment risk to employees in this kind of plan, and for this reason, these plans need to be carefully managed by plan fiduciaries to ensure that the investments are sound and that the fees are reasonable. The most common type of defined contribution plan is a 401k plan for private employers and a 403b plan for nonprofits. The Hughes v. Northwestern University case involved the latter type of plan, a 403b plan. But make no mistake, Just because the university is not-for-profit does not mean that there is a small amount of money at issue here. The Northwestern plan for its employees has billions of dollars in it and tens of thousands of participants. Several of these participants sued the university and a number of other plan fiduciaries because they allege that the plan is paying not one but two entities, TIAA and Fidelity, to keep records for the plan 
and is overpaying them to the tune of 3 to $4 million a year for this service. They also allege that a number of investments offered to the plan participants are not appropriate because they charge additional fees, aside from the record-keeping fees, that are unreasonably high. One important example is that participants say that the plan offers mutual fund investments that charge retail-level fees, even though the plan, as a large investor, could have gotten the same investment for much lower institutional-level fees. All of this, the plaintiffs say, has resulted in enormous sums of money being lost to the plan and its participants. And in allowing this to happen, the plaintiffs say, the fiduciaries to the plan have breached their duties to act with the utmost prudence and loyalty in managing the plan and in overseeing the others that they appoint to manage the plan and its assets. One other thing to keep in mind, it has long been a fundamental principle of the federal legal system that all that is required to bring suit is a complaint that puts the defendants on notice of the nature of the claim against them and that states a claim that is at least plausible assuming the plaintiff can prove everything he or she asserts in the complaint. This is called notice pleading and it's meant to allow any case that meets the low threshold to proceed through a system of discovery and litigation on the merits. Despite this, both the trial judge in Illinois and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals held that plaintiffs failed to state a claim and kicked the plaintiffs out of court right at the outset. Other courts have allowed these precise kinds of allegations to go forward, and the Supreme Court agreed to review the case to resolve this fundamental disagreement among the courts as to whether plaintiffs who make such allegations are entitled to litigate their case. With me to discuss all of this today is Phyllis Borzi, who served as the Assistant United States Secretary of Labor of the Employee Benefits Security Administration, otherwise known as EBSA, from 2009 until 2017. During her tenure, EBSA oversaw nearly 708,000 private sector retirement plans, approximately 2.8 million health plans, and a similar number of other employee benefit plans that provide benefits to approximately 150 million Americans. Previously, Phyllis was a research professor in the Department of Health Policy at George Washington University's Medical Center. In addition, she was of counsel with the Washington, D.C. law firm of O'Donohue and O'Donohue. From 1979 to 1995, she served as Pension and Employee Benefit Counsel for the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee of Labor Management Relations of the Committee on Education and Labor. First of all, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today, the day after Thanksgiving. Um, so before we get into the Hughes versus Northwestern case, what are you thankful for at the moment with respect to ERISA? Well, I'm thankful generally, but ERISA, okay, what am I thankful for? I'm thankful for the vision that the framers and drafters had of ERISA because they created a structure after 10, 10-ish, 10 10-plus 10 years of discussion, debate, research that really has withstood the test of time. I mean, there are a lot of problems in ERISA, that's for sure, particularly for participants who want to make sure that they get the benefits that they've been promised and earned. But you know, when you step back and you think about the basic structure, 
it really has withstood the test of time. And I'm thankful for that. It provides guardrails and protections for participants to assure, in most instances, that they get the benefits that they were promised and earned. Yeah, I second all of what you just said. And and that's the good news. So now maybe we should get to some of the bad news or the potentially bad news. And to do so, I, I think it might help if you could explain why this is important and how important fees are in the pension context, and really sort of how significantly they can impact retirement income that people will have at the end of the day. Sure. It's interesting because when I first was uh, went to the Department of Labor in 2009, the previous administration had already started on fee disclosure guidance and regulations, because I think people were beginning to finally understand, first of all, that fees matter. Back then, the research showed that for every 1% increase in administrative fees that a person pays for their 401k investments, over time, assuming a modest rate of return, over time for each year where the fees eat up 1% of your balance, there's about almost a 30% drop in your overall retirement savings. So it's a huge, yeah, it's a huge drop. And the sad part back then When I started looking at this within the department in 2009, one of the things that struck me was this research, including research that had been done by AARP, that most consumers, most participants, most investors didn't know that they were even paying fees at all. So why does this matter? Because people are paying fees. It's sort of the cost of investing. It's the cost of savings for retirement. And to the extent that these fees are going to eat up some of your principal, the people have done the right thing and saved for retirement, primarily through through employer-sponsored programs, are the people that are the most in danger because they have no idea that they are paying fees or they might think that they're minimal and they're not minimal. There's certainly some academic research out there that says that when you're looking at the difference, and this will go to the Hughes versus Northwestern case, because like all these fee disclosure cases, the issue is, did the fiduciary prudently select the investment options from which the participants can choose? And there's often a big difference. Many of these cases involve fiduciaries that have chosen to populate their 401k options with retail funds. The advantage to employer-sponsored plans is that you aggregate and you have leverage in the marketplace. You have a pool of assets. Yeah, they're individual accounts, but you bring to an investment a lot more money than one-on-one investing. So pension funds typically will offer defined benefit plans will have and, and 401k plans will offer commercial rate investments, institutional investments, they're called. And that is in opposition to the kind of investments that you get when you put your money in an IRA or other kinds of individual savings. You get retail funds. The same class of the same stock is offered to a pension fund at a much lower fee rate because you're buying commercial class than a retail rate. And people just have no idea. And yet the difference between what you're charged in fees for a commercial investment versus a retail investment 
can vary anywhere from then when we started this project in 2009, the numbers were somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 to maybe 40%. I've now read trade press articles where the difference between commercial and retail investments can be more than 100%, sometimes 200% in terms of the fee differences. And yet people don't even understand that they're paying fees. And I'm disappointed to see that even after what it's been almost a decade since the Department of Labor required basic fee disclosure, a recent GAO report that was done, that was issued just a couple months ago, showed that 40% of the people they surveyed still don't understand the 401k fees they pay or, or what the impact is on them. That's so interesting, Phyllis, because in my opinion, one of the problems in these cases has to do with that kind of basic financial literacy. And I think that actually judges are no different than the general population and sort of a lack of understanding of these fees, of how important they are. And also of the basic principle that you can get a discount for volume and that it's really only the fiduciaries of the plan that have the ability to get that discount. You can have all the information in the world as a plan participant, and you're not going to be able to get institutional level fees. You're not going to be able to get that kind of discount. So that's why I think it's so important that the fiduciaries are paying attention and getting the best deals that they possibly can. Absolutely, Liz. And it's the difference between, it's the importance, the critical importance of the fiduciary in structuring the plan and making the first cut. It's the job of the fiduciary to create a platform of investment options that are responsible and prudent. Yeah. Interestingly, that's not a new concept. ERISA drew from the law of trust, which is a really ancient body of law. And this notion that trustees, as they were called in the background trust law, that the trustees were responsible for investing for the trust and paying attention to the costs associated with investments and not for overpaying for anything is so well established. It, you know, goes back um, hundreds of years, frankly. So why this should be even a controversial issue in ERISA is kind of beyond me, which I guess brings me to the Hughes case, the Northwestern case. I think this case has a real potential to make it even more difficult for plan participants to bring suit to challenge fees. And I'd like to hear you comment on that, because I know very often in the Supreme Court and elsewhere, people say, well, but that's okay, because the Department of Labor, the Secretary of Labor can be the sort of enforcement, can be policing this world. I'm sure you have some comment on that, Phyllis. <laughs> well, I absolutely do. And that's one of the things that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that there's a private bar that can supplement the DOL's, the Secretary of Labor's authority to bring actions on behalf of participants. When I was the Assistant Secretary, there were something like 750,000 pension plans, you know, 401ks and defined benefit plans. And the Department of Labor, at its highest level, had less than a thousand employees. And about a third of them were frontline investigators, et cetera. And when you think about that, it's an enormous universe. 
the resources for policing that universe are very, very limited. And so the framers of ERISA, the drafters of ERISA, conceived a system, recognized that the Department of Labor couldn't possibly have the resources to bring every meritorious case on behalf of participants. And so therefore wrote into the statute the private right of action, not as I'm sure many in the audience know, not every civil rights statute or labor law statute or you know even in trust law there wasn't necessarily the ability of individuals to bring private rights of action to redress the wrongs and so we've had to rely on the private bar to supplement whatever the department of labor can do and i agree with you in this hughes case it's a very troubling case I'm not a litigator. I, Despite my four decades of work in the ERISA area, I'm not a litigator. I don't play one on TV, but I appreciate the fact that the job of the litigators for the participants is always an uphill battle. And I do remember back, you know, even though it's decades, to taking civil procedure when I was in law school and reading about notice pleading. And the concept of notice pleading, again, is not unique to ERISA, but the burden of the plaintiffs is to put up a prima facie case, a basic case, alleging a wrong and trying to hold people responsible. But the point of the notice pleading is you have to give the person you're suing enough information so they understand what the nature of the complaint against them is and they can defend. And then usually the defendant will come back and say, I never did that. You can't say the judge will decide whether there's enough there to go to court or not. And the Hughes case completely undermines that concept of notice pleading because the Seventh Circuit was basically saying to those plaintiffs, not only do you have to give the defendants enough notice so they basically can defend, but you have to prove at the initial pleading stage, without any discovery or anything like that, you not only have to say, you know, when there were institutional funds available at cheaper fees that offered good returns and good performance for participants, you chose to put these retail funds in here. In the Hughes case, they actually had two record keepers, which does seem kind of redundant, and they never put out an RFP, even competitively bidding for the record keeping business. But the court basically said to the plaintiffs, you have to prove your case at the initial pleading stage when all the information you need is not in your hands. It's in the hands of the defendants at, at Northwestern. I saw, though, that the Department of Labor filed an amicus brief supporting the plan participants. And it was a very strong brief. I was really happy, too. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and among other things, they did point out this problematic having two record keepers. But one of the main arguments in the case that really struck me is that if the plan can pay less, get the same investment for less, it should. It's very clear that ERISA requires you to make prudent choices in evaluating each of these investment options. I mean, think about it. If the court were to agree with the Seventh Circuit on this point, then all you would have to do to avoid a breach of fiduciary duty suit on the prudence side is offer a set of investment options, one that was decent and the rest horrible. That flies in the face of this gatekeeper role for fiduciaries that Congress intended when ERISA was passed. 
this notion that it's somehow okay to pay more than you need to. I, I mean, how did the Seventh Circuit get there? How can that possibly be the case? So I think there's a misalignment of financial incentives in the way these plans operate. And it would be a real tragedy if the, if the Supreme Court basically allowed that disincentive to continue. I do think that they will come to the right result, but I think it, they will so muddy the waters that we'll be back to the Supreme Court in the not too distant future. I actually agree with you there. I do think they're going to get this right because these sort of pleading issues have ramifications beyond ERISA. And just in the ERISA world, it's very important. And it should be very obvious, especially the way this case was briefed, that this is extremely important to workers and to retirees. So I, I, do, I do actually have, have quite a bit of hope that the Supreme Court will, um, will come to the right conclusion ultimately. Well, this, Phyllis, has been a fascinating discussion. On December 6th, the case, um, the Hughes case will be argued in the Supreme Court. I'll certainly be listening to the argument, which you can live stream, at least the audio of the argument. It should be very interesting. Sometime before June of, of next year, we should know what's going to happen in this case. And everybody should be paying attention to the fees that they're paying for their investments in general and certainly in their retirement investments. And thank you for helping me get the word out there and explaining this in a way, you know, that makes it understandable for people. Because I don't think that ultimately these are super complicated issues. I just think they're not issues that people think about every day, but they should be. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been fun. You know, I hope people begin to understand if they haven't already how important it is to focus on what they're paying. As I mentioned at the outset, the Hughes case will be argued in the Supreme Court on Monday, December 6th. We can expect a decision from the court sometime before June of 2022. If the court were to agree with the university that the lower courts were right to throw out the case before discovery and trial, this would make it very difficult for plan participants to ever bring a successful case challenging the fees being paid by their defined benefit pension plans which in turn means that they will not be able to police these fees, even though their plans may lose millions or even billions of dollars in retirement income in the aggregate because of such overpayments. Let's all hope that the court agrees with the plan participants instead. Next month, due to the holidays, there will not be a new episode of ERISA Watch. I'll be back in February. As always, Arissa Watch is brought to you by Cantor and Cantor. Our producer is Emily Hopkins. Our composer and engineer is Andrew Payson. Special thanks to Phyllis Sporzy for sharing her invaluable perspective. I'm Elizabeth Hopkins. See you next time.